Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. It's questions and answers, and periodically we will take a Sunday night instead of a regular sermon, we'll do questions and answers, and I want to do that tonight. You'll need a Bible because naturally we're going to be making reference to a lot of different passages as we go through the the questions. Here's the first one. It's from 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. And the question is, isn't it a logical fallacy to point back to the Bible to justify and explain that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's complete? Got it? So isn't this sort of circular reasoning? to say the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. Well, there, there's, there's some validity to that. I, I would say, first of all, that the Bible does claim to be the Word of God. That, that, uh, I think we ought to give the Bible permission to, to say what it will, and it claims to be the Word of God. And the go-to passage that's so strong, so clear, is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and all Scripture Scripture is a technical term in the Bible that means inspired words. It means this is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished to every good work. Bible claims to be the Word of God. In, in the Old Testament, 3,800 times you find claims that this writing is from God. In Psalm 119, from which we just heard reading a minute ago, the scriptures are exalted as being the word of God just in Psalm 119, 175 times. When you read what the kids know is the place for the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, at the beginning, verse 1 of it, it says this, and the Lord spake these words. Here's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's the verse over which the question was asked. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. In Galatians 1.12, Paul says that his message came not through himself, but through Jesus Christ. I would say that the validity of the Scripture is found in three different ways. And the first one is its own claims to be the Word of God. It testifies that that's what it is. The second would be the uh, evidence, the scientific evidence inside the Scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy and the unity of the Bible. I would say these are the things. The external evidences, you have... So many outside verifications, uh, verifications from the scriptures or about the scriptures, about the world around us showing the book would be, is accurate. So what I want to do is to recommend a book to you. Kyle Butt wrote, Behold the Word of God. It's available as a free PDF download from AP, from Apologetics Press. I can help you get it if you want to, and you can do more study about that. I love to read the prophecies of scripture, and you can see the fulfillment of them. As they unfold into time, the truth is the Bible does claim to be the word of God, and the truth also is that you would assume that it would do that. Next, 
As Christians, what should we do if we see another congregation withdraw itself from the local community of churches? What should we do if we fear that said congregation is falling away? Now, I take for granted that the person asking the question is talking about churches of Christ. We're talking about about faithful congregations, and one of them takes a turn and goes in the wrong direction. I would say that what we do about this, and this may, may surprise you, would be we would act as individuals. If you knew someone in that congregation, you had a friend in that church, I think what we would do is, is call them on the phone and say, I'm concerned, or let's have lunch together. Let's talk about some of these things. I'm worried about what's going on, and, and I'm worried about you. But what we wouldn't do is, is for one congregation to exercise some sort of authority over another congregation. Remember that in the New Testament, every congregation of the church is autonomous. Do you know that the churches of Christ have no, no state headquarters, no national headquarters, no world headquarters? There's no sitting board of directors over the churches of Christ by which things are decided. Every congregation is autonomous. And so what you have is every congregation has its own eldership. Acts 14 and verse 23, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, every church, such as West Huntsville, has her own eldership. Now, there is no governing body in the church of Christ above the local eldership in that congregation. And the reason that we do it that way is because that is the way it is done in the first century church, in the New Testament church. We do that in imitation of the first century church. Now, it doesn't have to make sense to me to be right, but it does make sense to me. You, you think about this very question. So suppose, suppose congregation A remains faithful, but congregation B over here they, they go off in a worldly direction, a wrong direction. They compromise the doctrine of the New Testament. What happens then? And the answer is that the whole is not corrupted because we're autonomous. One congregation could go off haywire, but it wouldn't affect other congregations, not necessarily. And that's how it's constructed. So our eldership here, in answer to the question, would not have any authority to correct them and it, now it could be that that if that congregation that has gone in a wrong direction is somehow affecting or influencing our members, that the elders might want to get up and caution the church here about that. Be careful about this, but it would not be up to our eldership to exercise or to try to exercise some sort of authority over that congregation because they don't. Our elders have authority only over the congregation here at West Huntsville. In First Peter chapter 5, he says that we are the elder, these are the elders among us in this local congregation. I preached a sermon recently about the subject of homosexuality, and I don't know if this question came as a result of that or if it's separate from it, but it's an interesting question. Sometimes when people try to say that the Bible does not ban being gay or homosexual, they say the word homosexual wasn't used in the Bible until recently. What's the history here? I would encourage you to, if you're interested in this subject, to, to go to our archives and our website and look up that sermon, and, and you can get a lot of information there. I haven't ever heard anyone say this. I'm 
I, so I, I, I'm not saying it's not being said. I just haven't heard it that the word homosexual wasn't used in the Bible until recently and maybe that somehow that has some impact on the discussion. It would not have any impact because Scripture is notable for its lack of ambiguity on this subject. It doesn't mean that we are hating anybody or that we wish to hurt anybody. It's simply to say that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's, that's all that it means. And uh, the, the Scripture condemns the practice of homosexuality, not just in the Word, the Word's there, and I'll show you, but also in, in a rather interestingly graphic description of the practice. So here's Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the men of that city said to Lot, where are the men which came into thee this night? By the way, this is the King James. I, I want to read this from King James. How recently is this word used or this concept? Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Now, if you want to know what that means... Uh, bring them out that we may know them. You go to the book of Jude, go to the New Testament, and here you have just a divine commentary on that. And Jude verse 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So when the men came and said, Bring these men out to us that we may know them, Jude said, it's talking about fornication. It's talking about going after strange flesh. And you have Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. And the Bible says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now, the, the word homosexual is not in this passage. But look at the description. The women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those, those things which are not fitting. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, we use the term homosexuals and sodomites and says people who practice these things and some others there uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And incidentally, in connection to that, he also says to those Corinthian brethren, and such were some of you. you, you shouldn't be surprised about what's going on today in America and other places in the world is not so unique. And, and it was going on in Corinth during this time, and some of those Christians had been practicing this, but they became Christians, they left their sin, and now they were Christians, and you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified. But listen to First Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. That the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for menslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, perjurers. And if there is any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. When you look up the word sodomite, in Strong's lexicon of Greek words, they say that the definition of sodomites was this, and I quote, 
one who lies with a male as with a female, sodomite, homosexual. Our problem is not that the scripture is ambiguous about this. And if, if this kind of discussion, and I know it's unpleasant, if it's upsetting, I, I want to suggest that your problem isn't with us. It's, it's with the scripture. All we're saying is that, that we've been practicing and believing and teaching all this time that scripture is true. And that, that's got to be applicable to everything the scripture says on a given subject. And this is what it says about this one. First John 17 and verse 1. If God is Jesus, then why did Jesus pray to God? I think that, that that's very interesting. And the question observes the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not going to answer this right now because I spent a class period in a Wednesday night class recently talking about this. And so I would refer you to the archives if you want to study this more. We went into some depth about this, that Jesus is God and and that he prayed to God. And incidentally, that class is, is uh, has just begun. It's going to go on Wednesday nights for a quarter and we're going to be talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first several classes, maybe a half a dozen, are going to be particularly on the subject of the Holy Spirit. So if you're inclined, I hope you'll be able to come to that class. Next, as long as you feel ready and believe, can you be baptized too early? And if you feel like you were, can you be a second time? And and the answer is um, yes, and there have been occasions where people were baptized many years ago. I mean, through my preaching, uh, I've been preaching for a, a few decades now, and through the years there have been many occasions where people have come to me privately, sometimes publicly, and have said, I just, I just reflect on my baptism. I just didn't know what I was doing. I did it for this reason or for that reason that weren't good, and I just want to know what you baptized me again. And, and uh, my practice has been to do that. And whoever wrote this question, I want to ask you to come and see me and let's sit down and, and we'll talk through this. And I'll be happy to help you in whatever way I can. Probably good to the next one. In the, in the question box this time was a, a question about a private matter. It was a rather lengthy question, but it was very private. And so I'm not going to read it, but it was put in the box. And so... Whoever wrote that, I just want to say that I'd like very much to sit down and talk with you privately about that. And so give me a call or give me a text and we'll get together at your convenience. Next. If an elder is saying things to people as fact that are only tradition or opinion, how would a member address it? We do a time period before elders are appointed to address things. But shouldn't the church do this periodically? Do our elders not need our accountability as much as we need theirs? I think it's a really good question. When an elder is ordained, and that's not a, that's a scriptural word, Acts chapter 20 uses it. It just means appointed. I'm okay with the word appointed or ordained, or, as long as it's a biblical term. I like to say Bible things in Bible ways. When an elder is ordained... If what we have done is to follow the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, then Acts chapter 20 would apply in verse 28 through 31. 
that the Holy Spirit makes them overseers. I, I believe that, that while we're out of the miraculous, we don't have the miraculous time and the Holy Spirit isn't guiding us separate from the Word of God, the Bible. <coughs> while that's true, when we follow the Scriptures about selecting our elders, those elders are chosen of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's, a, that's a rather profound thought. What are they for? Acts twenty twenty eight says, The Holy Ghost has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. After my departure, Paul says, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things and draw disciples after them. What's the Lord's response to that reality? That the church is going to have to be protected. The answer is elders. And how do we know which men ought to be our elders? And the answer is that we have passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that give specifics. And some of them are rather specific. Some are more general. And they're, you know, and there's, that's on purpose because we must judge according to these, this criteria. We must judge which men are mature, sound in the faith, able able by the way that they've lived to, to show people how to go to heaven and to, to govern in this way. So you, you don't just pick elders willy-nilly. You, you pick them in a very serious way. But once they're chosen, then their, their responsibility is to protect the church and to watch. So what about this question, though? So what if, what if an elder, a particular elder, goes in the wrong direction? Could that happen? Sure, it could happen. It's happened before. And the answer is that you must remember that the Scripture always talks about a plurality of elders. Acts 14, 23, Titus 1 and verse 5. There's always a plurality of elders. And the reason why that's important is because every elder serves under the other elders. Every elder is under the eldership. And so, should one go astray, the fact that you have plural men would give you this safeguard. And then the question is, do our elders not need our accountability as much as we need theirs? The answer to that question is no. The answer is emphatically no. They're not our shepherds. I mean, they are our shepherds. We are not their shepherds. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account that it may be well with you, that they may do this with joy and not with grief, because that would be unprofitable for you. We're to submit to them because they watch for our souls. Now, that's just the way the Lord set it up. And you can see the profundity of it. There's a there's a wisdom attached to that. It would also emphasize that we need to be very careful when we choose our elders. Around here, we are. We spend time with that. We don't just, just choose somebody because we like him or because he happens to be good in business. We, we take time and we go through all those qualifications again every time before we select elders. We carefully study those qualifications we give people time to raise objections if they know reasons why a particular man might not be suitable for this role. 
But once they're selected, they are our elders. The very idea that, that they would be held accountable to us is not how it's set up. They have their own checks and balances, and I would argue that that's the plurality of elders. One more thing. Elders have authority in matters of opinion. Elders don't have the ability to legislate law. The elders couldn't, couldn't say, uh, we've decided it's more convenient for us to worship together in corporate worship on Saturdays rather than Sunday. So we're not going to meet on Sunday. Do they have the authority to do that? No, that would be apostasy. The answer is they do not have that authority. But the Bible teaches they have authority. What's it over? It's over matters of judgment. It's over taking and enforcing, holding to the pattern of the New Testament in matters where the Bible has explicitly spoken, but then also to take these principles and make application in our lives to help us go to heaven. I would, I would say one more thing about this. this we, we just have to be so careful about his system, about how, and this is not about men, this is about God. It's about the way that he's set up to protect the church. When you go to Numbers chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, you have an Old Testament example of a very similar argument. You must be careful about this. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, took men. They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, uh, Moses and Aaron were the leaders. God, God put them in that position. Moses was the lawgiver and Aaron was the priest. And you, you, you know about all that. You take too much upon yourselves, they said. Listen closely. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, what's going to happen with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram is very bad. Numbers chapter 16, I would encourage you to read that. What's going to happen is that God's going to express his wrath about this. What I want to get to, though, particularly is the argument that was made. It was that we're people of renown. We're men of renown, Moses and Aaron. And, and we're, you, you, it presupposed that, that Moses and Aaron were in this position because they were holy. They were holy, and people knew they were holy, and God knew they were holy. They were holy, and so they had presumed to take this position. And the argument was, we're holy too. We're, we're all holy. And so that puts us all on an even level plane. And, and, and who do you think you are to... to be a leader over us. See, that missed the point. Th- those people might have been holy. They weren't holy on this occasion, but otherwise might have been holy. But th- the reason Moses and Aaron were in a place of leadership wasn't because they were holy. It was because God had put them there. It's because God had put them there. How does God put elders in place today? And the answer is, he gave us the scripture from the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, and said, you follow this. And when we do that, they are ordained of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean they can do anything. They've got to operate within the limits of their jurisdiction that God has given them. Having said that, it's pretty powerful. I mean, we're told to obey them that have the rule over us because they watch for our souls. And so do, do they need to serve under 
our watchful, watchful eye of accountability. I would say be very careful about that. We serve under their leadership and not the other way around. Next, do people who do not know the gospel go to heaven? And the question asks, like the Native Americans who lived around 1200 A.D., that's a good question, and you probably know the answer to this. Let me just briefly go down this. Um, the answer is that people who go to heaven are people who obey the gospel. People are not lost because they don't obey the gospel. People are lost because of their sin. The gospel is given to us as a means by which we contact the blood of Jesus, and we can't be saved without his blood because we have sin. And you can't take your sin into heaven. So 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 says this, Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, this is the judgment day, with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel, on whom in the judgment day will God bring his vengeance? And the answer is not ambiguous here. It just says it. Those who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. If ignorance would save a person, we ought to scale back our foreign mission works. I mean, we spend a great deal of manpower and money to take the gospel to the world. Should we do that? <coughs> Excuse me. Feather. I don't know how far back or how far the gospel reached in the Middle Ages. We have very little history in that period. The Native Americans may well have been exposed to the gospel. I mean, you remember Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. <clears throat> if the Native Americans were exposed to the gospel... I'm not so sure that you and I would know about it. God's the one who, who set up. <coughs> I'm all right. God's the one who set up the dispersion of the gospel. He did it the way that he wanted to do it. Now, this does place a great burden on us that, that we've got to be spreading the gospel. We've got to keep doing this. At the same time, this is the system by which God decided to disperse the gospel. Here's the last one. It's from Acts 3 and 17. In the Bible, we read that once God forgives us, he remembers our sin no more. Well, we still give account for those forgiven sins or only for those we have not been forgiven for. What about the sins that we didn't even realize we committed and did not ask forgiveness for? Will we also give an account for good works? Well, that's, that has several questions in it. Listen to these verses. <coughs> these, are, these are so comforting. Acts 3 and 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He points to the people who crucified Jesus and said, I understand that you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know the, the weight of what you were doing. They were still responsible for it. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake 
and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. In other words, that contrasts the old law system and the new law system. In the old one, you were born an Israelite. You you were an Israelite because of birth, because of your blood. Not so in the New Testament church. People in the New Testament, Testament church are born again. It's because we were taught. So no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everybody in the church knows him. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah fifty twenty. <clears throat> in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. The sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. And one of my favorites, Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Hebrews eight twelve. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Is it possible for there to be a category of sins of ignorance? Well, of course that's true. Of course it's true. In fact, in Acts 2 and 38, well, Acts chapter 2, those people who crucified Jesus were told that they did it out of ignorance. Colossians 1.13, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Luke 23.34, Father, forgive them, Jesus said from the cross. They don't know what they're doing. There's this category of sins that are ignorance. Leviticus chapter 4 is a chapter largely given to the subject of sins of ignorance. But for those who are, of us who are striving as Christians, we are Christians. We have accessed that blood. We've been baptized into Christ. We, we live in a condition that is saved. We walk in his light, First John 1 and verse 7. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with his and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We live in a saved condition. Romans 8, 4 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not take sin into account. It does not mean that, that we are not responsible for our sins. It means that when we walk in his light and live faithfully to him, those sins that we've committed, even of which we're unaware, are going to be forgiven. Romans fourteen twelve. we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may receive the deeds of his body according to that he hath done, whether they be good or bad. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who wants to throw our sins into the depths of the sea. I'm so thankful for his mercy. And sometimes we talk about some sins and it's being more grievous. I don't believe that all sins are the same. I I don't believe that. I think that's a very weak argument, and sometimes people use it, maybe compare a sin that is just tearing up our nation and the church in many places. And you say, well, one sin's not worse than another. It's very much like gluttony, you know, or 
or whatever, lying. Anybody ever tell a lie? And sins are the same. No, they're not. No, that's not true. They may be the same in the fact that they're transgression of God's law. That, that's true. They're not true in reference to influence. Or they're not the same, rather, it's in reference to influence. They're not the same in reference to the damage being done. Some are much more grievous than others, and of course you'd have to admit that. i tell you what, all, what also is consistent, and that is that God's forgiveness is real, and that if I'm willing to come to him on his terms and seek his forgiveness, the magnitude of my sin is not really the issue. The blood is powerful enough to forgive my sin, and aren't you thankful for that? Maybe someone here tonight who needs to obey the gospel. Have you accessed the blood of that cross? Have you accessed it? And the point at which that happens is when I come up out of that water. I go into the waters of baptism in imitation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 6. And when I come up out of that water, I walk in newness of life because I'm saved. And then I live in a way to please him. I walk in his light. And if I die without a moment's notice, I will have salvation in heaven forever and ever. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.